Psalm 126. Really excited to preach this passage because I had a lot of people say, Where, what are you going to do with this passage? I, I, a sermon doesn't really readily fall out of the passage um, if, from just a cursory reading, but we're just, I, I'm here to tell you, it is a gold mine. And so we're just going to scratch the surface this morning, um, but I'm excited for us to look at God's word. Psalm 126, let me read the psalm in its entirety. A song of a sense. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we now come before you to participate in the greatest privilege that we have in this life, to hear you speak to us through your word. And so, Father, we come now as your children for Jesus' sake because we have been adopted as your own through his person and his work on our behalf. And so we pray that you would speak to us powerfully, that your spirit would accompany this weak preacher and these weak listeners, and that, Father, we would be drawn into a closer relationship with you as a result of our time in your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, just this past week, I... uh, I did something that I commend to all of you. I spent some time reflecting on the history of my walk with the Lord. Highly encourage you to do that occasionally. Um, And one of the things that I remembered was how much I struggled when I was a newer Christian with trying to understand what the role of my emotions should be in my relationship with God. I don't know if you can relate to that, but that was a struggle that I really had. And looking back now, what I realized is that I really went to both extremes. In my attempts to understand the role of my emotions, I went to the the two opposite ends of the spectrum. And so on one end of the spectrum, I just gave full vent to my emotions. I didn't hold anything back. Just let them all hang out there. And I think a big reason for that is because once Jesus changed my heart, I began to feel things that I'd never felt before. And I I also began to feel things more deeply than I'd ever felt before. And so for me, I was dealing with a whole new range and depth of emotions. But what I learned really quickly, which I'm sure some of you have learned as well over your years in your walk with Christ, was that emotions are not reliable, are they? They're not a good guide for life. If you try to let them guide you, your emotions, you're going to run into a lot of unnecessary pain. And trouble. And so, as a result of that, I went from that end of the spectrum of just giving full vent to my emotions to then the other end of the spectrum where I tried to shut my emotions down. I mean, I literally tried to be so self controlled that I wouldn't feel anything. That was my goal. My emotions just seemed to get me into trouble, so I'm going to shut them down. Shut them down. Now, the problem with that was that I couldn't just turn my emotions off. As hard as I tried, I I never found that emotion button that we can just 
hit and, and shut our emotions off because there isn't one. Because God created us as human beings to experience the full range of human emotions. And so whether we decide to express them or suppress them, they're always going to be there. Now, if you ask the world what to do with your emotions, they're going to tell you to try my first approach. Just give full vent to your feelings. Just let them all come pouring out. Express yourself freely. That's what the world's going to tell you. But then if you ask most people in the church what to do with your emotions, they're going to tell you to try my second approach. Just, just try to ignore your emotions. Live like you don't even have them. Be more self-controlled and lock those emotions down. That's what most people in the church will tell you to do. Now, I don't know about you, but neither one of those approaches seems right to me. It seems wrong to me that we either have to be a basket case of emotions or we have to be on complete lockdown emotionally. So then here's the question. How are we, as Christians, supposed to think about our emotions? What can we expect our emotional life to look like once we are in Christ, once we've been regenerated and given new hearts by the Holy Spirit? What will our emotional life look like once we're saved? Well, what I love about Psalm 126 is that it gives us a picture of what our emotional life will look like as Christians. As a matter of fact, Tim Keller, who's a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, says of this psalm that it gives us an emotional map for the person who believes in God. In other words, this psalm shows us what we can expect our emotional life to look like as Christians. And what we find is that it tells us to have three expectations for our emotional life. You guys sick of the three things yet? I always give you three things. I don't know how else to see the text, so pray for me that I'll see two or four or five. But I've got three things for you this morning. Three expectations for our emotional life once we're in Christ. It tells us that we can expect joy, expect sorrow, and expect hope. Joy, sorrow, hope. So first, let's look at how we can expect joy. Look at verses one through three with me again. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now before we jump into anything else, I want to briefly explain to you what kind of psalm Psalm 126 is. Because Psalm 126 is a communal lament. These are weird words that we don't often use, but there are various types of genres of psalms, and this falls into the genre of a communal lament. And it's, it's uh, communal because it's a song that speaks for all of Israel, for all the people of God. It was meant to be sung together, and it's a lament because the community is sad while they're singing this song. And why are they sad? Well, part of the reason they're sad is because they're remembering how God restored their fortunes in the past. And now you may be wondering to yourself, well, why would that make them sad? Well, it makes them sad because those good times are now gone. 
And so when you go from good times to bad times, remembering the previous good times makes the bad times more difficult. Because you remember how good things used to be. And you see, the Israelites can remember this time so vividly that they almost speak about it as if it were currently happening. Now, we don't know specifically how God restored their fortunes. Some scholars try to take guesses at it or what these good times looked like, but but the text ultimately doesn't tell us. But really, it doesn't matter that we don't know specifically how God restored them. What matters is that they're remembering a time when God filled their lives with joy. And so the first thing we notice is that they acknowledge that God's the one who did it. They're giving God the praise. In other words, they're acknowledging that God is sovereign and that every good and perfect gift comes from him. And so they're giving God the glory that is due him for restoring their fortunes. And the next thing we notice is that they were so amazed at the abundance of God's gift that they almost couldn't believe that it was true. That's why they say in verse 1 that they were like those who dream. You see, everything was going so well that it's like their wildest dreams were coming true. It's almost like they're saying we had to pinch ourselves to make sure that we weren't dreaming. That's how well things were going because of God's restoration. And so how did they respond? How did they feel as a result of God's restoration? Well, verse 2 says that their mouths were filled with laughter and their hearts were so full of delight that they couldn't help but sing with shouts of joy. And I wonder, you ever felt that way before? Have you ever felt so joyful that you couldn't help but sing? Or or at the very least, whistle a happy tune? This happens to me all the time. You can ask my wife. Well, that's how the Israelites felt. And apparently, this restoration that God had brought about was so great that even the surrounding nations had heard about it. And what did the nations say? They said in verse 2, the Lord has done great things for them. In other words, not only did the nations know that things were going well for Israel, but they also knew that God was the one who did it. And what could be possibly better than that, right? Things are going well for us, and God is getting the glory. That's the perfect situation. And so what they say in verse 3 is, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So you see, they were happy. They were joyful. Why? Because God had restored them and the nations were looking on in wonder at God's work among Israel. Okay, so, so what does all that mean for us? I mean, it's great that all this happened for Israel, but how does this apply to us today? Well, here's how. What this means for us as God's people is that we too can expect joy in our lives. And really, there are two reasons for that. There are two reasons we can expect joy in our lives. First of all, we can expect joy because God has created us to experience joy. I mean, just go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, and what you'll see very clearly is that God created us for joy. I mean, think about it. In the garden, everything for Adam and Eve was filled with joy. Their work was filled with joy. Their marriage was filled with joy. Their family life was filled with joy. And most importantly, their relationship with God was filled with joy. And you see, this is what God created us for, to enjoy his goodness and the goodness 
of his creation. So you see, the reason that we can expect joy is because that's what God has created us for. But I need to be clear on this. This isn't just an expectation for Christians. It's an expectation for non-Christians as well. And here's why. Taking joy in God's creation is a part of God's common grace. And what is God's common grace? It's the grace that he shows to Christian and non-Christian alike. It's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5.45 when he said that the Father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's common grace. And so what this means is that even Christian, uh, non-Christians excuse me, can expect to experience joy from God's good creation. Why? Because of God's common grace. And so you see, that's why both a Christian and a non-Christian can go to the Grand Canyon and look at it and experience joy. And that's why both a Christian and a non-Christian can enjoy good food or a good family life or beautiful art or a well-executed sports play. I'm a Christian and I even have a hard time appreciating that one. But non-believers and believers equally can. Because even though the non-Christian is in rebellion against God, he can still find joy in God's good creation Why? Because of God's common grace. In other words, the first reason we can expect joy is not unique to Christians. It's not just something that Christians experience. It's something that all mankind experiences because of God's common grace. So that's the first reason we can expect joy. But the second reason we can expect joy is unique to Christians. And that's the joy of knowing the salvation of the Lord. And really, this is the greatest of all joys. I mean, just think about it. Just sit there and think about the, when you first became a Christian. Can you remember those days? Do you remember the thrill of knowing God as your father and the freedom of knowing that your sins were forgiven and the, the delight in speaking to God in prayer and hearing him speak to you through his word? And the peace of knowing that you were reconciled to your maker. And the joy of having a new heart that now wanted to obey God rather than rebel against God. Do you remember that? It's joy unspeakable, isn't it? I mean, it makes me think of the first two stanzas of that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. So you see, that's joy unspeakable. It's the joy of knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord, that we can't save ourselves, only he can, and he has in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And you see, this is the joy that only Christians can expect. This is the joy that's unique to Christians. It's the joy of knowing that God has redeemed us in his son and we have now been restored to a right relationship with God so that we can now cry out to him as our Abba, our Father. And so these are the two sources of our joy. As Christians, we can expect joy from God's good creation And we can also expect joy because God has saved us in Jesus. But I got to tell you, I wish I could just end the sermon right there. 
That's it. Just expect joy. Have a great week. I'll see you later. But I can't end it there. Because that's not where the story ends. That's not where the psalm ends. Because joy isn't the only emotion that we should expect. Joy is only half of the coin. The other half of the coin is that we should expect sorrow. Expect sorrow. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me again. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the, sowed, the, the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, as you can tell, in these three verses, the tenor of the whole song changes. As a matter of fact, it's because of these three verses that this psalm is a lament. Because if this psalm was just verses one through three, it'd be a song of praise. Because of the joy and laughter and restoration. But verses four through six show us that the Israelites' current situation is very different from the days of old that they remember. Now again, we're not told exactly what their situation is, but whatever it is, is not good. And how do we know that? Because in verses 5 and 6, we see that they're what? They're weeping. They're crying tears of sorrow. And so what we're led to believe is that whatever the great restoration was that God brought about in verses 1 through 3, it's now gone. It's come to an end. It's like they've woken from the dream that was God's restoration, and now they find themselves in the midst of a nightmare. A nightmare that they can't get out of. And so what do they do? Well, in verse 4, we hear them crying out to God. And what do they say? They say, restore our fortunes, O Lord. In other words, they've experienced great loss. They've lost the restoration that brought them joy and laughter. And now they find themselves grieving their loss with sorrow and weeping. And so they cry out for God to make things right and to restore their fortunes. And we understand this, don't we? Don't we find ourselves praying for the exact same thing when we're in the midst of loss? Don't we pray for God to restore to us what we've lost when we're grieving? We do, don't we? And that's absolutely appropriate. Hear me loud and clear on that. Absolutely appropriate. As a matter of fact, this psalm is inviting us to do that. But here's a question we need to answer. Why do we even have losses in the first place? Why should we expect to experience loss and sorrow? Because I don't know about you, but I'm almost always surprised by the losses I experience. I don't expect them. I'm shocked by them. So why should we expect to lose things? Why why should we expect sorrow? Well, we should expect sorrow for two reasons. For two reasons. First of all, we should expect sorrow because we're sinners. Again, if you go back to Genesis, what we find is that God created us to experience joy by obeying him. And here's what God tells us to do. He tells us to be God-focused and others-focused. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. That's the way of joy. That's how God created us to live, in obedience to him. But you see, in the fall, we rebelled against God. Rather than loving him and others, we turned in on ourselves. We sought to be a law unto ourselves. And why did we do that? Because we believed Satan's lie. 
that there was a greater joy to be found in being self-focused rather than God-focused. And here's the thing. We've been believing that lie ever since. But you see, the truth is that sin and self-focus is the way of sorrow. It doesn't give us greater joy. It kills us. And you see, that was Satan's plan from the very beginning. That's why he tempted us to sin. Satan doesn't want us to see greater joy. He wants to see us knee-deep in sorrow. And that's exactly what sin does. It sinks us deep into sorrow. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we experience sorrow in this life. Because as long as we're sinners, we will experience sorrow. And that's not just the case for Christians. That's also the case for non-Christians as well. Both will experience sorrow for sin in this life. But I want to be clear on this. There's also a sorrow for sin that only Christians know. And do you know what that sorrow is? It's not the sorrow of a rebel who breaks the king's law and then gets caught. No, it's the sorrow of a beloved son whose disobedience breaks his father's heart. See, the non-Christian experiences sorrow for sin because sin complicates their life. It makes it harder and messy, and so they don't like the consequences of their sin. But the Christian experiences sorrow for sin because sin offends their loving, heavenly Father. And that sin distances them from Him. And so they experience sorrow for their sins, and they repent of them. Why? Not ultimately because they hate the consequences, but because they love their heavenly Father, and they hate to displease him. And that's a sorrow that only Christians experience. So why should we expect sorrow? Well, the first reason is because we're sinners. And the second reason is because the world is now fallen. We live in a fallen world. And why is it fallen? Because it's under God's curse. Again, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we see that God curses man and all of creation for man's sin. And so that's why there's sickness. And and that's why our best laid plans are thwarted. And that's why work is toil. And that's why birthing and raising kids is so painful. And that's why there's broken relationships and natural disasters. And that's why we all die. All of these sorrows exist because we live in a fallen world. Because we live in a world that's under God's curse for sin. So then what does all this mean? Well, it means that we should expect sorrow. Don't expect life to be nothing but unbroken joy. You are a sinner who lives amongst other sinners in a fallen world. So of course you're going to experience sorrow. I know that's not the way it's it's supposed to be, but that is the way it is now. So expect it. Don't be surprised by it. So we should expect joy, we should expect sorrow, and the third expectation we should have is we should expect hope. Expect hope. Look at verses 5 through 6 with me again. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, what we need to see in these two final verses is that the psalmist ends the song on a note of hope. He ends it with hope. But anytime we talk about hope um, in the Bible, we need to slow down and actually define it. 
Because the way the world talks about hope and the way the Bible talks about hope are very, very different. And here's why. What the world talks about when they're thinking about hope is that hope is just a wish. That's all. So in the eyes of the world, hope is nothing more than a desire that we want to become a reality, but we're not certain if it will. It's, it's what we mean when we say, I hope it's sunny tomorrow. Probably no one in here hopes that. You're probably hoping it's overcast tomorrow. But what I mean by that is not that I'm certain it will be sunny or overcast tomorrow. I just want it to be sunny or overcast tomorrow. So that's the way the world thinks about hope. But what the Bible means when it speaks about hope is that hope is a sure thing. It's a guarantee from God himself. It's a promise. It's a certainty. And so what this psalm is telling us is that we can know something about our sorrows with certainty. And here's what it is. We can know with certainty that all our sorrows, all our tears and weeping will produce joy. God promises us that all of our sorrows will bring about joy. And how does that happen? Well, the psalmist actually tells us how. And he does so by way of another word picture, of a word picture. And it's a word picture about farming. And see, if you go back in the psalmist day, um, when a farmer wanted to plant a crop, he would first have to spend all of his money on buying seed. Now, we have a hard time understanding this because we can just drive to the store or hop on the internet and get seed at the, at the drop of a hat or have it delivered to our front door. But that's not the way it was back then. Seed was very hard to come by, and so it was expensive. And so what the farmer would do is he would spend all his money on buying seed and then take that seed and plant it in the ground. And he had no idea whether it would grow or not. He had no control over whether or not he would have a harvest. And so for a farmer, planting was always a huge risk because all your money was tied up in that seed, and what did you do with it? You just stuck it in the ground. And so if you don't have a harvest, guess what? You're broke, and you have no more seed, and your family is going to go hungry. So it was a huge risk. But if you don't put your seed in the ground, then there wasn't even the possibility of having a harvest. So that's the word picture. But here's what the word picture is telling us. The psalmist is telling us, now you got to listen carefully to this, that our tears, our sorrows are the seed. And what he's telling us is that just as the farmer must sow his seed to reap a harvest, so too we must sow our tears, sow our sorrows, so that we can reap joy. Do you see that? Does that make sense? Okay, so then how do we do it? How do we sow our tears? How do we sow our sorrows? Well, I think it goes back to the question of how do we handle our emotions? Do we just dump them out all over the place and just feel them to feel them? That's what the world will tell you to do. Or do we just lock them up inside and, and never deal with them and just have a, a stiff upper lip? That's what most in the church will tell you to do. But you see, it's neither one of those. Because the Psalms don't tell us to just dump our feelings or to deny our feelings. Instead, they tell us to pray our feelings to God. And do you know why that is? Do you know why you should pray your feelings to God? 
Because God is the only one, ultimately, that you can trust with your feelings. He's the only one who can perfectly understand. He's the only one who can do anything about your feelings. And so that's why you should pray them to him. But do you know what you're saying when you just dump or deny your feelings? When you just dump your feelings, you're saying, I can deal with my feelings myself. I'll just dump them out and express them as they come up, and then I'll move on. That's how I'll deal with my feelings. In other words, you're trusting yourself with your feelings. You're turned in on yourself in regard to your feelings. And it's sinful. Why? Because you're not turning to God. You're not trusting in God. But you see, on the other hand, when you just deny your feelings you're still doing the exact same thing. You're saying, I can't trust God or anybody else with my feelings, so I'm gonna protect myself and just bottle them up. And so again, you're trusting yourself. You're turned in on yourself. And it's sinful because you're not turning to God. But what the Psalms tell us to do is to turn to God and pray our feelings to him, to pray our sorrows to God. And do you want the perfect example of that? Well, let me point you to the only perfect man who ever lived. His name is Jesus. And he is fully God and he is fully man. And because he is fully man, while he was on this earth, he experienced the full range of human emotions. And what did he do with those emotions? Did he just dump them out on people whenever he felt like it? Or did he just deny them and say that they didn't matter? No, he prayed them. I mean, just look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before he's going to be crucified. And here's what he tells his disciples. You don't have to turn there. But in Matthew 14, 34, he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. In other words, Jesus is so overwhelmed with his sorrow, that he says, I feel like I'm going to die from sorrow before I even get to the cross. So that's how he's feeling. He's feeling unbearable sorrow, the like of which none of us can even begin to understand. But what does Jesus do with those feelings? Well, in verse 36, he prays them to the Father. Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. He doesn't dump his feelings. He doesn't deny his feelings. He prays his feelings to God. But here's a question we haven't even asked yet. Why is Jesus experiencing sorrow in the first place? I mean, he's perfectly righteous. He shouldn't experience sorrow. He's never sinned. So what's going on here? What's going on here is that Jesus is bearing our sorrows. He's bearing the sorrows that we deserve for our sin and rebellion against God. So you see, Jesus is bearing the ultimate sorrow, the sorrow of all sorrows. He's bearing the weight of the eternal wrath of God for sin, and he's doing that in our place. And you see, that's why Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He didn't deserve to know sorrow. He didn't deserve to know grief, but he did. And not just on the cross, but his entire life was a life of sorrow. And yet every time he felt sorrow, 
Do you know what Jesus did with it? He turned to the Father. He prayed his feelings perfectly to the Father because you see, he was perfectly obedient to the Father. And why did he do all that? He did it for you and he did it for me. He did it in our place, on our behalf, not for himself, but for us. And so you see, what this means for us now is that because of Jesus, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. We can cry out our feelings to God the Father. We can cast all our cares on him, knowing that he cares for us, knowing that he will hear us, knowing that he will be with us, and knowing that he will sustain us because he is our Father. And that should be enough for us. But you know what? God promises us even more if you can believe it. And here's what he promises us. He promises us that our sorrows will produce joy. Did you catch that? It's not just that our sorrows will turn into joy, although that's true as well. The promise here in this psalm is that God uses our sorrows to produce joy. And here's what that means. It means that as we pray our sorrows and our tears to our Heavenly Father, those sorrows produce a harvest of joy. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing or producing or achieving for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And really, this shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because isn't this how sorrow worked out for Jesus? Didn't Jesus' sorrows produce joy? Yes, they did. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? For the joy set before him. In other words, Jesus' sorrows produced joy. And so if that's the way it was for our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, then that's how it will be for us as well. But I want you to know something very important. I want you to hear me out on this because I know that some of you here this morning are just filled to the brim with sorrow. I know that some of you even now are on the verge of tears because of the great losses that you've experienced. And so I want you to hear this. The joys that sorrow produce come slowly. They don't come quickly. Sometimes we have to wait weeks or months or years or even a lifetime before we see the joy that our sorrows produce. And I know that's difficult. I know it's hard. I know at times it seems unbearable. And so I don't want you to hear me saying, just put on a happy face and get on with life because that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying pray your sorrows to the Father. Pour out your tears before him and know that someday, I can't tell you when, but someday those tears will produce joy. So come, bring all your tears to the Father and let him speak his hope over you. And for the rest of us, let us take heart, brothers and sisters, 
As we walk with Jesus, we can expect joy. Indeed, great joy. But we can also expect sorrow. Indeed, at times, unbearable sorrow. But don't forget that because of Jesus, we can also expect hope. Because Jesus is our blessed hope. And it's because of him that we can know that our sorrows will produce an everlasting joy. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have created us to experience joy, to take joy in your good creation and to take joy in our relationship with you. And yet, Father, we turned against you. Rather than finding our joy in obeying you, we tried to find joy in being a law unto ourselves. And so we turned in on ourselves and turned away from you and away from others. And Father, because our first parents did that, Adam and Eve, all of the sorrows that we experience are now here in this, on this earth. And Father, we know we experience sorrow Um, as your children for our sins. We pray that we would feel that sorrow even now, that if our consciences are hard, that you would soften them towards you. You'd break up the hard ground so that we would repent and see how our sin breaks your heart and then how you receive us with open arms for Jesus' sake. But Father, we pray that we would be a people because of the hope that we have in Jesus, because he perfectly um, turned towards you with all of his feelings and in all of his sorrows and paid the penalty for all the ways that we've sinned, we pray that we would be a people who expect hope, who know and turn towards you in the face of our sorrows and our tears and pray them to you, knowing with all our hearts that because you are sovereign and because you cannot lie and because you are good, You will make good on your word that you will use our sorrows to produce joy through them. So may we be empowered by your spirit to come and to pray them before you, knowing that some sweet day, every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. When Jesus comes back again, how we long for that Jesus because you are our blessed hope. We ask this all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.